it's good to be back. It's been, I think, about 10, 10 weeks since I've done that. I'm, I've added a stool here this morning in case I need it. And uh, I think my dad's here. It, dad will appreciate this. I was, uh, I've, most of my life I was a machinist, and one thing you couldn't find in our shop was a stool uh, because it was hard to work and sit down. That was the way uh, that our shop was always run, so I got that in me. It's awfully hard for me to sit down this morning. Uh, but I'm going to try to take it a little bit easy if I can this morning, and sitting down might help me do that. So I'll probably at least lean on it here a little bit this morning. But it's good to be here if you're online. I, I, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Peter. So much appreciate Jeff. He's taking some much-needed uh, time off carrying us through Peter, but we're going to finish it before we go back to John. And so just so you know how it's going to roll, we if you're online and watching, if you're here, we preach through books of the Bible here. I want to get through with Peter. We're going to go back to John. We're going to finish John. Then we're going to the Old Testament. We're going to study through the book of Jonah. So that's sort of where the plan is. Um, I'm looking forward. What we do every week, just so you know, is we, as God's people, we gather together. We read the Word. We sing the Word. We pray the Word. We preach the Word. Then we respond to the Word. It's about Christ, it's about the Word here, and in response, as we respond here in a few minutes, you'll notice that the communion is set here every Sunday. We take communion every week as part of our response. The offering baskets are there between the communion. It is our response to the Lord. And then we scatter as God's people to make disciples. That's what we do as Christians every week. And uh, I don't know if you read a lot. I do. I always have a good biography uh, that I'm reading, sometimes one, sometimes more. I'm reading a biography about J.C. Ryle right now, but another guy who made a difference in my life and many lives was Jonathan Edwards. He didn't live to be an old man, but oh, what a life he lived. And he lived his life by guiding principles. We're going to use this word a lot today called resolves. He had many of them, and they grew as his life went on. I just want you to read a few of them this morning before we go to God's Word, just to sort of set the stage this morning. His resolve number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved. Number 14, never to do anything out of revenge. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I wish I had done when I come to die. I love, verse, I love uh, resolve 22. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. These determined his Christian journey. What is determining yours this morning? The Christian journey, our main idea this morning, is lived, prepared to suffer as Christ suffered, as we resolve to live a life of loving, faithful service. We could, we could put it together, our whole, this whole message this way. Prepared to suffer, resolve to live. 
So 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. Let's stand to our feet because this is God's word. 1 Peter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. We're going to focus in for now on verses 7 to 11. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray for our time together today, Lord. You and I have already talked about this this morning. But thank you for giving me another chance to preach God's Word. And thank you for giving the people in front of me another chance to hear it and to respond to it. And so, God, I pray for us both that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we all would resolve to not waste the life that we have, but to resolve to suffer when it comes so that we might be like your Son and live for your glory. Give us wisdom and insight and very clear application into how then shall we live today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. And so if you've got your notes, we, we decided to keep with this larger piece of paper instead of the ha half sheets of paper because it's a little bit easier to take notes on. And uh, so you ha I hope you have that before. If not, they're in the back. We are on a journey. This has been Jeff's focus through the book. The journey that we live is lived. We're going to see first that we are supposed to be, and we've learned this in John, we have to be focused on the Father's will, but we must be prepared to suffer. So I want you to be thinking about this this morning. We're going to use this term, resolves. What are your guiding principles in life? That is, what are some of yours, sometimes I've, and if I've talked to you privately and you're struggling over something, I would say, what are your non-negotiables and how you are treated and how you treat other people? What are your non-negotiables for your church? What are your non-negotiables in your family? Do you and your spouse know what they are? What guides what you do, what you don't do, what you say yes to, what you say no to? What are your non-negotiables at your workplace? When you come in tomorrow and, and they get you to sign something that says you won't speak of your faith, because if you do, you will be subject to immediate termination. Have you resolved already what are you going to do? Because it's coming. And it could be in your workplace tomorrow. In the same way, the Christian journey, we must have some settled resolves. And I hope to see just a few of them in Peter, at least this first section. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, so as to live the rest of, of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, so what do I mean by resolve? What did Jonathan Edwards mean by putting that at the beginning of all of these sort of guiding principles? Re resolve is just straight out of the dictionary the way we would understand it is to come to a definite or earnest decision. It is to determine either to do something or not to do something. It's to settle that thing ahead of time. So what is the big picture here? Overall, what are we settling? What is, should be the focus of Edward's resolves and of ours? If you look at verse 2, you see very clearly, it is the will of the Father. It is the will of God. You cannot follow Christ without knowing this about Jesus. He is and was consumed by the will of His Father. It affected absolutely everything He did to the cross, to glory, and when He returns. His life was governed by it, and so must ours be. These are the focus of our resolves. And so let's look at the first one. Resolve to internalize Christ's suffering for us in His body. I'm not saying that you just know it. I'm not saying that I'm saying, oh, why did Christ die? And how did Christ die? And you can tell me the story. I'm saying, have you internalized that into your life? Now, what do I mean? Because words are powerful, and they can be misunderstood. Internalize. To incorporate within the self as conscious or subconscious guiding principles. It is to think about Christ's suffering for us on the cross so much, so much in your life, that what comes up out of you is guiding principles that determine how you live. And if we have not internalized Christ's suffering, we don't even understand the gospel as we should. This is what Peter is focused on. He has already focused us on the Christ's suffering as the fundamental primary guiding principle of our life that must be internalized. Look back up into chapter 3. We saw this last week. Verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It, there's no greater verse that really explains not only what Christ did, but why He did it. He went to the cross and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. Why did He, why did he go there? Why did He bring the cross up? Because the people were already suffering. The people were suffering. Look at verse, back up a little bit in chapter 3 to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You see, there was a them. There was a them that was involved. There was a trouble to be had. They were suffering. And so to help them know how to navigate life in their time through the suffering of life that they were going through, he went to the cross. And so when we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, we see this 
arm yourself with this attitude. The attitude of Christ. The attitude of cross. The attitude of what is the Father's will is the question. Not what makes us comfortable. If Christ suffered in His body, why do we think it is God's will for us not to suffer? We must resolve something this morning. That suffering sanctifies. Suffering sanctifies. Look at verse 1 back in chapter 4 again. The second half of it. Let's read the whole thing. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The main point of this text is that we must arm ourselves, equip ourselves, prepare ourselves with the intention to suffer. I know, this is not popular. But listen, as a pastor, you have to try not to preach it if you're going to preach the Bible. Because it is everywhere in the Bible. There's an attitude. This could be translated intention. Arm yourself with the intention. You're preparing yourself for it. This word arm means to equip. It means to prepare. It is military language. Like, like a man or a woman who is preparing themselves for battle. Believers should equip themselves for this. Listen, it does no good today. To put on the armor of a warrior without the attitude of a warrior. In other words, you could say it this way. It takes more than camouflage to make a hunter. If you don't have the attitude of a hunter. If you don't have the intention of that hunter when he goes climbs up in that tree stand. Then you're not a hunter. You may enjoy nature. Right? It's not a hunter. I grew up with guns. Guns was a part of our growing up life. We learned how to handle them, learn how to respect them. And this is one thing that we were told. Don't you point that gun unless you've got the intention to use it. Because to put a gun in a hand of a person without the right attitude and the right without attention is dangerous. Now listen to what I mean this morning. I mean that a Christian who is not prepared to suffer for Christ will gravitate towards any false teaching that promises him that he don't have to. And it's alive and well today in the church of Jesus Christ that Jesus died on the cross so that you won't have to suffer. Christ suffered and he calls us to follow him. Let me, let's give us an illustration in the life of the church. Turn with me to Acts 14. Acts 14, if you know Acts, Acts is the story of the early church. It's the story of how the mission of God explodes on the scene of the world and turns the world upside down. But look at what was a normal day in Paul's life. Acts 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Listen, listen, verse 22. 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not an exception to the rule. This is normal Christianity. We must be resolved. We must be resolved to live as Christ lives. To live as Christ lives. Look at verse 2. Back to chapter 4 now, 1 Peter. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for your human passions, but for the will of God. Do you see what he's telling God's people that they must resolve? They must resolve once they have internalized that Christ suffered for us to bring us to God. We must resolve to live as He lives. We are not saying this morning that we should seek suffering. Did you hear me? We're not saying that we should seek suffering. I am saying to you based off of God's Word, when we follow Christ, suffering will seek you. Listen, I know this hasn't been preached enough. I know I haven't heard it enough. But the more we walk in obedience, suffering increases. But so does the affection with the Lord. And so does the affection with His people. And so does the joy of God. And so does the work of the Spirit. Obedience doesn't flow from some kind of legalistic checklist to get your Father's approval. Obedience flows from affection. And by affection, I mean that word agape, that God love. It flows from that. And you know this in your life, if you have a healthy marriage, that love is never passive. Love, love doesn't lay on the couch and say, bring me a beer. Hey, and the baby's crying. I don't know what that is. It's not love. It's not love. It's not this love. Because obedience always flows from Affection. Well, that's why it produces in our life today faithful, loving service. And if it's not producing that in your life, you need to go back and check your love life. First with God, then with others. We could say it this way. Look at verse 3. He's so clear here. He's, Peter said, For the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In other words, what is Peter saying? They must resolve. They must resolve as Christians to be done with the thing. That's what we mean by killing sin. Our brothers that went before us, kill sin or sin be killing you. We must resolve. That's what he's telling you. You must be done with it. The, the word suffices here in my Translation is, means more than enough. Got no more time to play around. He's resolving this. Whatever span of life I have, I'm going to give it to him. And I'm done with what the world is doing. It's not our resolution. Because he said if it is, that you must expect scorn. You must expect it. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, right? What he's already said. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. The word malign means slander. You. It means to slander your character, your person. It means to come after you. It means to come after your family, 
If you don't know what this looks like, just watch politics. If they can't defeat the person, they'll attack the person's character. This is demonic. This is exactly the way the devil works. And he said, you must expect it. You see, believers then, many of them were former pagans. They used to go to the love feast. They used to go to the temple prostitutes. They used to worship the pantheon of gods. But the Lord has saved them. And now they have ceased from that lifestyle. And to the world, it just seems weird. It seems strange. But listen to me. This strangeness that they're saying, they're not saying, that's weird. Right? They're saying, something strange about you, Jason. And what do they do? Is it passive? Not on your life. It is active. They become offended. You see, cancel culture is not just something in our day. It's something in every day. But when they cause we are not engaged in what they are engaged in, they just not to turn around and give us an eyeball, they will attack us. And the verbal always comes first. He says this again in verse 12, chapter 4. I think we know this verse a little bit more clearly beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you he said it's not strange when you get attacked for being a christian it is normal christianity because they are treating you like they treated jesus and it is listen to me it is an honor to be treated as jesus was treated it is an honor. They must have settled it. Because when they have settled who Christ is and that they're going to live for Him, scorn is coming, but also we live with this reality. Look at verses 5 and 6. So is the judgment. Sober judgment is coming. This is not to attack even unbelievers. This is not to attack Christians. This is to encourage them. But they will give an account, verse 5, the pagans, they were to account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> that word, you know, you read something a thousand times and all of a sudden you just see that word. That word jumped out to me. He's ready. You see that? He's ready. The judge, Jesus, the judge. He's coming. When he's coming, he's not going to be holding a lamb. He's going to be holding a sword. He's coming. This is the encouragement to Christians. Listen, this is the context who are being persecuted. They're suffering. They're going to work and they're having to put up with the scorn for eight hours a day. They're talking with the, with the girls over there in the corner talking about you. That's what he, they were putting up with. He said, you need to be reminded, believer, that there is a final day of vindication that is coming for God's people. It's not today. He's not encouraging us to use this to, to try to vindicate ourselves against believers. He's trying to do this to encourage them to persevere. That suffering matters. That faith matters. That the gospel matters. Do you listen to a sermon on the radio or even today as if it's life and death? Because it is. And many that are hearing today, this word will either be received or rejected. God's word has promises that it comes with. And I don't produce it and neither do you. It comes with a promise when we proclaim it. It comes with a promise that it will produce life and it will nourish life. And I know today 
That when I proclaim the Word of God, that in your life, God promises He will use this Word to nourish you. And when you proclaim it into someone li- someone else's life, you have the same promise. You see, let me read verse 6. I know this is people disagree with what this means. I'm just going to tell you the way I am convinced that what it means. Uh, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in this spirit the way God does. You can see this in both of Peter's letters. What is happening here in, in people's life is their parents and their friends and their loved ones who, who believe and who follow Christ are dying. And unbelievers are saying, what good is it for you to believe in this Jesus? Your former believers die just like we do. What good is it? We can go on and read a little bit further in 2 Peter and see they're just saying, Jesus is not coming back. It doesn't matter. Your parents died just like I do. So what's the benefit of believing in Christ? He tells them here that the final judgment is coming. He tells them here, this is what I believe. It's not talking about the intermediate state. Though I know people believe that. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he's talking about it in the present as if it has already happened because it is that sure. He speaks of the resurrection. This is why he's encouraging people. Though the believers die before you that believe the gospel, though the gospel that you believe is causing you persecution, there is coming a day when God will vindicate His own. And on that day we stand. And so get back to work. That's what this means. To see the resurrection of the dead awaits not only us, It awaits them. And the judge is ready. You see, all of this, all of this is important to get to the text. (laughs) To get to the text that I want us to look at. We must resolve this so that we might live. All of this is important. Say, just tell me what to do, Pastor, in this particular situation in my life. What have you resolved? If you haven't resolved, you need to stop the message and go back and get the resolutions right so that you might live. Because the Christian journey is lived in loving, faithful service until we all arrive safely home. There is a Christian motivation in life. We see it in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Right? This is, a, this is Christian motivation. This is not, in the Bible, Christian fear slapping. Let me say this clearly, because I know I've, I've, I've been received this way when I said, if someone says you need to live in light of eternity, or life is short, or uh, James, we talked about that a minute ago with brother, life is a vapor, and, and people get, uh, Christians get afraid. If this makes you afraid, there is something wrong God has given to you that as a warning sign in your life because this motivation ought to give us anything but a time to go hunker down. Life is short, so we need to live. Christians live a particular way. You see, there is two realities. And one is primary in this context. The Lord's return is imminent. The imminent return of the Lord. This is what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. But here's the reality. Second reality, our imminent departure to Christ. This is more real to me because of what I've been through 
But listen, you could be just as close to going to see Jesus as I was a few weeks ago. And you don't even know it. There are two realities. The imminent return of Christ, He's coming back. And our imminent departure to Christ, therefore, because of this, this motivates us to active obedience, not fear, but faithfulness. Melissa just got through reading it. To live is what? Christ. To die is gain. You know what? If I'd have died a month ago, you know what it would have been for me? Gain. If you die tomorrow in Christ, it'll be that for you. But today, are we alive or are we dead? You're alive, so live for Christ. And if you're going to live for Christ, there's some priorities that Peter lays out. You see verse 7, Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? It's always important, right? When your kids start getting old, they start asking that question. Why? 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 Why is it important? Why is it a really good word? Why? For the sake of your prayers. So you need to practice self-control and a clear-mindedness because if we don't, we can't pray as we should. Self-controlled. What's that mean? It means in biblically sensible, reasonable, able to make good judgments. Matter of fact, self-controlled and sober-minded are really connected. It means to be able to keep one's passions in check. Sober-mindedness is to be free from one's emotions. It is to be able to govern them in two ways. Two ways you need to be sober-minded this morning. And this is important. In our pill-popping, distracted age, you need to listen to me. Because many of our prayer lives are being affected. Two influences are affecting our prayer lives. External influences and internal influences. This is why we need to be sober-minded. Anything that dulls the mind is affecting your relationship with your Lord. Anything that dulls your mind is affecting that. And that could be drugs, it could be alcohol, or it could be your phone. Oops. <laughs> One thing I learned is took some time off and did a little prayer and fasting is how much I go to my phone every time I have a, a spare second. I was convicted this week. It's affecting your prayer life, son. It's affecting your prayer life. Those are external influences. There can be internal influences. They are to be constantly governed by your emotions, to be constantly affected by your situation so much that you can't even steal your mind and pray. Listen, this is important. To dull the mind is an unbiblical, destructive way to deal with past trauma or present anxiety. You hear me? To dull the mind, however you are doing it, is an unbiblical, it is destructive way to deal with the past trauma that has happened in your life or the present anxiety in your life because it is dulling your mind to the things of God and to the prayer and to the communion of God. Prayer is not some mindless repeating of words. We do not teach our children simply to memorize and to then upchuck prayers 
before their meal and before they go to bed. That is an affront to a holy God. Prayer is communion with Him. Listen, I can't find a better way to say it than this quote. Prayer is the movement of the heart towards God. Prayer is the movement of the heart towards God. It is pouring your heart out to a God who knows your heart, who made it, who knows how you feel. He knows your innermost thoughts. It is, it is the movement of that towards Him. It is the removal of everything that gets in His way is our priority. When you biblically pray, here's the result. The Lord will quiet your soul and He will stir your affection. And listen, I would say this, and I mean this. If you haven't experienced this lately, you need to take a day off, and you need to turn your phone off, and you need to get along with your God till He quiets your soul and stirs your affections. If you don't get anything out of this message, make that a priority in your life. This prayer is motivated by love. And since it's motivated by this agape love, it will produce something in your life. And what it produces is our second priority, and that is brotherly love. I'm, I'm mashing a couple of things together here because i got a book, and I'll talk to you about it later, that we're going to be studying as a small group on hospitality. Brotherly love. Listen to verse 8 and 9. 8 and 9 go together. Above all, what did that say? Above all, keep loving one another. Now remember, the context is suffering, right? You can't ever forget this every time you read through 1 Peter. The context is their suffering. What do I do about this? Suffering is not stopping. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This brotherly love, this hospitality that is motivated by agape love. Brotherly love looks like how we love people. It does something. This word hospitality, we, do you know the word xenophobia? Have you ever heard of that? It's a fear. You know what it is fear of? It's a fear of strangers. Xenophobia is a fear of strangers. The, that xena is in the word hospitality. You have the word philo, xenos. Brotherly love of strangers. That's what hospitality means. In, in Romans 12, 13, we see this so clearly. Romans 12 and verse 13. This is the normal Christian life. It's what it should look like. It's what your life, what my life should look like. Contribute to the needs of saints, believers, and seek to show brotherly love to strangers. Hospitality. It's what we do as a church, what we seek to do. What our deacons seek to do is what you should seek to do. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show love to strangers. But here it's amazing because look at verse 8. He uses the word hospitality with the one another's. I love this because this is where it's got to start. There is a common 
benevolence and goodwill that is due as Christians to all people. But there is a special brotherly love that we give to our own, to our own brothers and sisters. And I meant to bring a hanky up here just in case I needed it. But oh, how our family has felt this over the last six weeks. And many of you loved me, loved us in individual ways. And you don't know how you loved me and how they loved me was coming together to experience something that is overwhelming in the times of suffering. Do you get this? If you want to know what your pastor is going to focus on over the next six weeks, read verses 8 and 9. This is our focus. Biblical hospitality. Because when you do it, both each other and the world don't know what to do with it because they have never seldom experienced it. And what motivates it, what orients it is prayer. Prayer orients us toward hospitality. So do you see this? The river flows in a particular direction. Hospitality flows from God. We are hospitable to strangers because our God is. We love each other because we were first loved. Hospitality flows from God into the hearts of Christians, into the heart of a Christian, into the brothers and sisters, and from the brothers and sisters to the world. That's the way it flows. And so a church that is always backbiting and talk-biting and, and not showing love will never reach the neighbors and the nations. It is like a fountain that has to fill up one reservoir to overflow to the other one that overflows to the big one. If you don't get that one right, if we don't understand that all this comes from God, that's why we have communion every week. To remind ourselves that we must commune with our God. It's... As we commune with our God, it transforms our soul into Christ's likeness. And as our soul is transformed into Christ's likeness, it bubbles out into the way we love our brothers and sisters and the way we love those that we have never met. Third priority here is forgiveness. I love this word. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You see that word cover? I love that picture. But the word cover simply means willing to forgive. You must be willing to forgive. He's getting this language of covering from the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Verse 19, uh, Proverbs 19, verse 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So, as I thought about what to say, sometimes you get a quote, and you're sitting there going, man, you just need to read this. Listen to Wayne Grudem. I think it's on the screen. This is so true. This is true. Listen, you can replace the fellowship of Christians with family. And it would both be true. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, 
Every word is viewed with suspicion, and every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound. I mean, is not that the truth? You ever had a bad season in your marriage? Or you ever had bad problems with, with family members? Or you ever had a bad experience in a church? You can trace it back to a lack of love. If every time someone is listening to me, they are suspicious as if I am trying to undermine them, it means me and him and him and God have a love problem. And if we fix that, the river begins to flow. So how? How can I begin to show hospitality towards each other? This is what we are going to focus on in, in a book I'll tell you about later. But here's one way. Look at verse 10 and 11. Spiritual gifts. Verse 10. Each, as each has received a gift, use it. Right? I mean, we could just stop there, right? Every person has received a gift. Use it to serve who? One another. One another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Love flows out through your spiritual gift that God has given you. He does not give gifts to enhance your self-esteem or to wow somebody else. He gives it for ministry. He gives it for service. He gives it to use for His children. God's given you what He's given you to bless His children, to take care of them. Spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege. They are a responsibility. Something that the king has given you and told you to be faithful with. And it might look like a mop. And it might look like a microphone. The call is to faithfulness. It's not about your worthiness. It's not about your ability. It's about that King Jesus has given it to you. What are you doing with it? Because life is short. Let me just say this, though I'm out of time. If you desire a microphone, you should probably pick up a mop. But don't be surprised if you're mopping that floor one day and the king tells you to pick up a microphone. Because that's exactly what he did in my life. There are two categories, speaking and serving. The point is this. I'm not going to get into this today. The point is stewardship. It's stewardship. It's about whatever it is. It's about pick up something and start blessing God's people with it. This building is clean today and sanitized because there are people that loved you by preparing up the building. And you don't even know who it was. Who was it? It was your brothers and sisters. That's who it was. This is how it works. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. I love that. For the common good. The common good. I love that Jeff's been using so that instead of so what. There's a really good so that here. In the text today, it's in verse 11. I'm going to read the whole thing. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you see the so that? For all that we've said today, it's, it's, it's simple, right? I love it. Peter just says it. This is his personality coming out. Just so that in everything God may be glorified. That's why this is important. So the question today is this. What resolves do I need to make from my journey? What resolves do I need to make from my journey? Why would you stop anything else that you're doing and get your resolves right so that God will be glorified? What I'm teaching you today is not unimportant. It's not something that you should file away in your Bible. It's sometimes that you need to write something down. Lord, I don't know how much time I got left. But the time I got left, I'm, these are going to be my guiding principles in life. And if you have a spouse, y'all need to get on the same page with it. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And here it is again, above all these. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we close, I have and I have included on... Um, most of them thus far even in my sermon today in case I used them. One of the things I did over my time off is made up my own resolves and, and they seem to be growing. <laughs> Resolved to stand firm with the Lord and His gospel declaring it with all my might. And listen, some of you may need some resolves that I made. Just being honest with you as my pastor, these are personal, but they're important. Resolved to never be harder on myself or other people than Christ is. I must, you must resolve to never be harder on yourself than Christ is on you. Because some of you are hurting yourself by not believing the gospel. And some of us are hurting other people. Because we don't treat people like Christ treats us. Resolve to be content with such that I am in Christ and all that I have in Christ. Peter ends verse 19 in chapter 4 this way. Let, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good what a good summary this is our charge and now brothers and sisters let us go to the Lord in prayer Lord we now have come having heard your word to respond Lord we are so thankful for music 
Oh, what music, how it is a gift of God that you give to us, both in our private times of worship and in our corporate times of worship. Lord, that we might sing to you as a response to who you are and what your Son has done. May we charge ourselves even in song with how then shall we live. And Lord, we long to commune with you. And so, Lord, we come to the tables today. And as we prepare ourselves for the tables, we do so at the cross. Lord, even before we come and Remember your Lord's, the Lord's body broken, His blood shed. We come to you and say, Lord, forgive us. And thank you for that forgiveness. And then, Lord, we're going to come to the table as one body. And remember that we are family because of the sufferings of Christ. We are a forever family forever adopted into your family never to be rejected because of the blood of Christ this we remember this we stir our affections toward you and we are so grateful that we can gather together today to remember it and so God strengthen your people with all that they need for life and godliness. Receive our worship and shower us with your grace. Now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.